Welcome to Palm Sunday and welcome to the April side of March Madness. How was how was your how were your games? Yeah, no. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to Masters Week. Yeah, there we're, we're moving on different sport, right? Well, congratulations to our Tar Heels fans. You know, sorry for the rest of you guys. So close. So close, but um, how'd your brackets go? Anybody make it? No. <laughs> Not, none of you are sounding terribly excited. Well, I have some good news for you. Don't, don't take it too hard, because according to Forbes, the chances of any one person coming up with a perfect March Madness bracket is one in 9.2 quintillion. That's a big number. So don't be too hard on yourself. It's okay, you know. That's uh, That seems really big to me. I don't know. Seems like that you'd have a little bit better chance than that. Um, but, you know, you can try again next year. All right, so I've got a couple more things seeing this. Uh, I saw that pop up, and I started looking up some other things that I, that I want to share with you that really will sort of kind of be relevant, I promise. So let's go through. I have some other odds here of, of rare things happening to people that I want to show you. The chances of you am being ambidextrous are one in a hundred. I thought that was really low. Like one out of every hundred. Do we have any like truly ambidextrous people in here? Like My you could, son is. your son is really, wow. Like can equally use left and right hands. I, to me, that was, I, I can't believe it was that many people. Your chances of getting audited by the IRS. Welcome <laughs> to tax season. Don't forget your taxes are due like, uh, I was going to say, they bumped it to the Monday, though, right? Yeah, because 15th is a holiday, right? Luke's got us covered. So don't forget, get those in, you know, preferably this week. And apparently this number is, is getting harder and harder uh, for you to get audited with all the stuff going on, and they're probably shorthanded, too. Um, but that number is just a, ugh, 1 in 220. That, those odds are a little too good for my liking. The chances of you becoming a, a bone marrow donor, if you're on the registry, 1 in 430. I actually had the chance, I, I got all the way one time to having all that extra blood drawn. I was a match for someone and they were drawing all the blood and then they insulted me by choosing another match that was just as perfect as me, but younger. <laughs> I'm not that old, y'all. Yeah, they had like a 20 something, so I guess 20 something bone marrow is better than 40-ish bone marrow. But go, go get on the registry, that's a good thing to do. The chances of you catching a foul ball in a professional baseball game, one in 835. That's not so bad. So maybe bring your glove to your game. If you go to the Salamanders game down here, I bet your chances are a lot better. So they're constantly whacking balls onto that roof and thud and all the kids running. So, so bring, your, uh, bring your gloves. We'll probably do one this summer. Uh, I don't w not a lot of our teens are in here today. I think they're all the spring break for them. And I think a lot of them, are a lot of people in general are out of town. But your chances of getting a perfect SAT score, one in 3,370. Uh, <laughs> not a chance, not a chance. I know a few who did, but it's not very good, yeah. All right, your chance if you are a casual bowler, not a professional, of bowling a perfect game, one in 11,500. Josh actually took bowling for his college PE class, and he got a lot better at it than I did, but I don't get anywhere near a perfect game. 
your chance of dying in a shark attack if you don't live within 100 miles of the coast. One in seven million. Now, I guess if you have a beach house and you're in the water all the time, watch out. Don't go at feeding time. Which is also the same odds, oddly enough. And this one cracks me up for all of our, our southpaws. How many lefties we got in the room? Oh, that's a good number. Josh is too. Well, all you southpaws, including Josh, your chance of dying from being a left-handed person who misuses right-handed <laughs> products is one in seven million. Apparently, it happens to about 45 people a year. Who knew? Like, those, those right-handed scissors in a left hand can just be really dangerous, I guess. So, <laughs> something I know. Um, so when, whenever we do let Josh out of kids' church, go ask him his, his kindergarten cutting story and how he failed cutting. Shh, I didn't tell you, because he's a lefty. Your chances of becoming U.S. president, one in 10 million. Now, <laughs> unless you're, no, Jeremy, you don't have a chance, I'm sorry. <laughs> but this chance does increase if you're religious, have a law degree, are in the military, and are a white male. So those of you who with those qualifications. Your chance of being canonized as a saint, one in 20 million. Now, I'm just going to assume that those chances are higher, yes, for those in this room, right? You, you're all living right and doing good and doing miracles like in your Monday through Friday, right? This one right here. Yes, there we go. Oh, Brant, good. Way to capitalize on that moment. I, can, I canonized her the day we got married. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Their last name is Cannon, for those of you who don't know. We need like a real like rimshot kind of thing. Okay. So this one's kind of, aw, not quite as much as Brant's aw, but the chances of you being exactly you, like your lineage, exactly with all of your ancestors and relatives and all the things that had to happen for you to have all of your traits and be exactly who you are, that seems like that would be an astronomical number, right? One in 5.5 <coughs> trillion, right? Uh, hundreds, thousands, millions. No, one in 5.5 billion. Yeah, I do too. I feel like, okay, yeah, I have to count over. Hundred thousands, millions, billions, 5.5 trillion. Yeah, there we go. I wasn't kind of quiet. The chances of you doing good at math on a Sunday morning, one in 5.5 trillion. If I would look at my notes, I actually have it written out there. I'm doing that to myself. So some of these obviously are extremely unlikely. You know, like we've heard all the stats about playing the lottery and having things happen to you. For some of these things, like coming up with that per perfect March Madness bracket, they really are virtually impossible for you to cause to happen, much less two, three, four, five of these things to happen to you all at once or even throughout the course of your lifetime, right? Well, where I'm going with this is that there were hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, who he would be. Things like that he would be in the line of Abraham, come from the line of King David, that he would be from the tribe of Judah, that he would be born to a virgin in a very specific town, Bethlehem. You know, we, we know that from our Christmas stories. Things like that he would live in Egypt for a time, that he would preach in parables, that he would um, minister in Galilee, that he would be despised and rejected, and even that he would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
which is from Zechariah 9.9. That's where that specific prophecy is found. And that is, of course, part of our, our day today, a Palm Sunday and what we're, we're learning about and celebrating and remembering. That's what this triumphal entry is all about. So depending on how you take all of these hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament and break them apart, because you know a couple might be found in one verse or whatever, but depending on how you categorize them, there are somewhere between three and four hundred of these specific prophecies about who the Messiah would be. And the amazing thing is that the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus fulfilled all of them. Every single one. So here's one more probability for you. The chances that all these three to four hundred prophecies would be filled by one human person is one in ten followed by 27 zeros. For you word people, that's one in ten octillion. It is ten billion billion billions. It's an unfathomable number. Like some sort of big universal type of thing that we, we can't even comprehend. So I taught kids church a couple weeks ago and I shared this with them. Um, and I asked them, what do you think that that means? That this chance is so small of one person fulfilling all of these things. And one kid said, oh, it must mean he's crazy. You know, well, man, it is kind of crazy to think about this would all happen and come true in one person's life and the way he lived and the characteristics of his, his life. But what it really tells us is that with man, this is absolutely impossible. But with God, it's purposeful. He did it on purpose. Everything was calculated and planned out and set in motion from the very beginning of his rescue plan. That we would know that we know that we know that Jesus was the Messiah because everything about him, we sang a song about it this morning, that the one foretold from ancient prophecies foretold, this one person lined all of it up. And so God really wanted us to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is our savior. So this morning, we're ending our Lent series, looking forward to Easter next week. And we've been talking about these, um, these psalms of ascent, these road trip songs, as Josh has been calling them, that the Israelites would sing up on their journey, on their pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. And we've been using them to talk about um, kind of the theme of this, this series has been turning away from certain things and turning toward other things. We've been talking about turning away from things like sin and self and turning towards things like perseverance and repentance and service and obedience. And I'm going to just call today's sermon turning from the shortcut and turning to discipleship because I have to have something to put on the website when I post this thing. Um, but what it really is, is answering Jesus's call and showing up in the way that he calls us. We focus on turning towards Jesus himself and the call that he has for us, specifically doing that in a way that we ultimately turn from these shortcuts. Uh-oh, Josh is coming out. That we turn from these, he's fine. He's fine, everything's fine. That we turn from these shortcuts that we maybe start following him for. You know, things like maybe having our problems fixed or 
having these burning questions that we have answered. Sometimes we come to him for those reasons. But what we want to do is we want to turn from the, not so much those and turn toward the long road of walking out a lifetime of transformative discipleship with Jesus. It, it's all about what Cliff shared this morning, you know, that we are his disciples. And that means we follow him and we go along with him. So we are going to look at another psalm today if you want to be turning there. It's Psalm 118, however you turn or scroll or bring that up. But this isn't actually one of those song, songs, psalms, here we go, psalms of ascent. This is in a different section just before, and it's called a Hallel psalm. It's a song of praise, of thanksgiving for God's salvation. This psalm and the five right before it, so 118, 113 through 118, are a collection of praise songs collectively called the Hallel. Now you might recognize the root of hallelujah in there. It's the same idea, the same word. That this is praise and thanksgiving, and these are songs written specifically for that purpose, for praise and thanksgiving. And they're really joyful songs that would have been sung at all the big festivals, especially Passover, especially at that meal. Passover, of course, the meal that all of these people were traveling into Jerusalem for to observe, this Passover feast. Um, those of you who got to come to the Seder uh, the other Friday, that was a really cool experience, was it? To kind of see how the, all the different elements and the pieces of this, this meal and, and the way that it points to the Messiah. And so songs, as you saw, were part of that celebration. You would kind of have these psalms interspersed in this meal and is a very specific part of the celebration. And so these people, Jesus and his disciples and all of these festival goers are traveling into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. And they would have been singing these songs. And at the same time, remember, they're remembering how God rescued them out of Egypt, how he saved them from Pharaoh, how he sent these plagues, how the 10th one was the death of the firstborn, but he saved them because if the people followed what he said and put the blood of the lamb on the door, the death angel passed over their homes and they were saved. And so that's what this was all about. Now in the accounts of Holy Week, um, which is this week, which we talked about, right? We're at Palm Sunday to Easter. In two of the gospels, it actually tells us, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, that at the end of the Passover meal, which would be like on Thursday of this week before he was crucified on Friday, um, after he entered Jerusalem and had this meal with his disciples, at the end of the meal, it says, Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples. Have you ever noticed that little line in there? That that's how they wrapped up the meal? Well, the really neat thing, I think, is that he, they do this together and they sing this meal right before Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And, and prepare himself for what's coming. And it is highly likely that this psalm that we're about to read, Psalm 118, was the actual hymn that they sang at the end of that meal. Have you ever wondered that? Like I've wondered, well, I wonder what they sang. Was it that whole Hosanna? Right, we were talking about this. We were joking about that this morning, those of us who did that song. But this was probably it because it's the last Hillel psalm and it's what they would have wrapped up their Passover meal with. So let's go and let's read that together. Psalm 118, we're just going to kind of crank through. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. 
When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me, he is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense, and he has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live, and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. Notice the shift from talking about him to talking to him. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. And this will sound very familiar for today. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bowels in hand, Join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So as you can see, it is a very upbeat, happy song of thanksgiving, of praise, of triumph. And it really has this tone of like a warfare, a victory in warfare that he was surrounded, he, but he cut down his enemies because the Lord helped him. Um, it was him, it was the Lord who gave him success. It was the Lord who saved him. Now, with the timing of Passover and Jesus's triumphal entry, as we call it now, into Jerusalem, you know, on this donkey, this psalm, this song, and you can kind of hear the song rhythm to it, right? absolutely would have been on the minds of all these festival goers coming into Jerusalem. This is something that they would probably know by heart, that they would sing all the time, and they knew that it was going to be a part of their week and one of the things that would be a part of their worship. So this absolutely would have been in their minds. And indeed, we see the crowds responding to Jesus as he comes in on this donkey in this story of his triumphal entry as though this psalm right here is being played out right in front of them right? So we're going to flip real quick, um, and we're going to read this together, the actual story of the triumphal entry. Now you can go, you know, it's told in all of the Gospels. Um, I'm going to do something a little different here. We're going to read it together, and I'm going to pull from Luke, or excuse me, from Matthew 21, if you want to flip there, but I'm going to take a little chunk of Luke 19 and insert it so that we have a, a better picture of what we're looking at and what's happening here. So Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem for Passover, and this is what the word says about that. 
starting in Matthew 21. As they approached, excuse me, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. See to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now this is the chunk from Luke. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So here at once we have these two passages, one that is just very triumphant and praising and thanksgiving and joy for salvation and for rescuing and success, and yet Jesus is looking out over the city saying, You don't understand. You don't have success yet. You're not there. You're, that's not the story that's playing out. But this was an expectant crowd. They had very high expectations for what was about to happen because they'd seen the miracles. They were probably some of those crowds, you know, that watched him heal and multiply food and deliver and, and restore sight to the blind and lame men get up and walk and run. So they'd seen this stuff, and they were now convinced that Jesus was indeed a prophet. And even some of them, with the themes of Psalm 118 ringing in their head, knowing what's coming this week, they were thinking, this could be him. This could be the guy that God is sending to us that, to give us this victory over our occupier Rome, this victory that we have longed for. So they had very high hopes and expectations. And not only do they have Psalm 118 ringing in their minds, but this very type of scene had actually happened before. It was very familiar to them because not quite 200 years before, the Greek Seleucids had invaded and defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig there and we know how bad that is, and setting up a statue of, a statue of Zeus right in the middle of the temple. Now you can imagine how awful that was, this holy place of worship. And anyone that wouldn't follow these pagan traditions or anyone who kept observing the Jewish customs, things like circumcision, would be arrested and killed. And there's a man by the name of Judah Maccabees who became their hero because he drove these guys out he cleansed the temple, he restored it, and he reconsecrated it. 
And so that's kind of the Reader's Digest version for the sake of time, but it's actually where the celebration of Hanukkah comes from, if you know the story of the oil lasting while they're trying to get the temple fixed. And so this, this story of Judah Maccabees is very fresh to them. It, it would have been kind of like us seeing a whole bunch of people head to the Boston Harbor and start throwing crates of tea or something in, you know? Like they knew this story. This was familiar. And they knew what it meant when they saw these things happening. And he was honored in the same way. We have this picture here. It's, he's on his horse. But he was honored in the same way that Jesus was honored coming into Jerusalem. So it's, it's kind of stirring their expectations for something very specific. Because wait a minute, the last guy who rode into Jerusalem, but on his war horse, that we sang praises to and laid palm branches down for, he kicked out the bad guys. And he made sure our way of worshiping was preserved. And so that's what they're seeing here. And so this scene of Jesus riding into town is, is stirring very specific hopes and expectations from the crowd. And boy, were they on board to help it out, weren't they? They're all rushing. They're cutting the palm branches. They're laying their cloaks down. And they are ready to help advance this narrative because they wanted to end the same way as last time in a complete military victory in getting rid of the Romans and what they thought the coming of the Messiah meant. So bust out your palm branches, rend your coats and your cloaks, sing the halal songs. Here's one that might solve all of our problems, answer all of our questions, take care of everything that's going wrong. And here's one that might drive out this Roman occupation and reestablish the throne and preserve our way of worship. And so everything is buzzing. The excitement is just palpable. You know, it probably would have been something like a really big carnival that you have and you get like a street performer that's really good and everybody kind of starts, you know, the crowd gathers real fast and you hear the cheers and everybody else wants to be a part of it and FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. You don't want to miss something. So everybody starts to gather and see what's going on. And so it would have had that sort of energy and excitement around it. Everyone wants to see what's going to happen next. And word spreads and folks start to crowd around to get a glimpse of this prophet, of this guy who's been doing all these miracles, this healer and this deliverer, and this one who resembles their hero of 200 years before. And yet, there's this moment in the midst of all the buzz and of all the excitement and everything going on when Jesus just stops. And even amongst the crowds and the excitement, he pauses and he begins to weep. He looks out over the city with all of the worshipers, with all of their activity, with all of their offerings being brought, and he just begins to cry. Now one might think that he was crying because he's looking ahead and he knows what's going to happen when he gets in that city. He knows that Friday is coming. He knows what he's going to have to go through. But that's not actually what's happening. That's not it. He's looking out over all these lost sheep, the ones who are not in his fold, the ones who have all of these hopes and these expectations, all of their nostalgia for heroes of old and kings on the throne that preserve their way of life. And there's actually a spot in another passage where he says, these people that I have longed to bring under my wing and gather together and care for and love. And he doesn't get to do that the way he had hoped. And so he's weeping because he knows that the crowds that are following him on that day are not going to be following him even five days later. 
And that's the thing, the only thing he knows that will really bring them true peace. And they're going to reject it. And they're going to turn away from it, and they're going to choose something else. Not because they've got the story wrong. You know, they knew that part. Yes, a king is coming. Yes, he's arriving. Yes, he's going to bring salvation. Yes, the sacrifice would be bound and taken up to the altar to be sacrificed. They had the right story, but they had the wrong kind of king in mind. He would enter on a donkey in peace, not in military resistance, like the picture that we saw of Judah Maccabees. Yeah, he would cleanse the temple the very next day, but he wouldn't cleanse the temple from the nations. He would cleanse the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations. He would deliver not from occupation, but from sin and death. And he himself would be the sacrifice to be bound not to the four horns of the temple altar, but to the four posts of a wooden cross how horrified the crowd would have been if they'd known that in that moment as they're singing shouts of victory and praise. He would establish a heavenly throne in an eternal kingdom, not an earthly throne in Jerusalem like David's. And he wouldn't be a big flash in the pan and handle everything and solve all their problems right away. He would invite them too to take up their cross and follow him. That's not what they were looking for. Guys, Jesus wasn't looking for a flash mob. <laughs> he was calling disciples. And discipleship isn't very popular. The next big move of God, the next big street performance, the be- next big flash, bang. That's what people are drawn to, right? That's what's popular. Not a slow, long burn over years and over a lifetime. A bright, loud flash in the pan is attractive and it gets people's attention. But Jesus didn't come riding in on a war horse or a chariot. He came on a donkey. Peace isn't always very popular either. And so when we come to Jesus with palm branches and our coats and all the things that we want to lay down before him and our shouts of hallelujah, that's good and it's fitting, but it's not where Jesus calls us to remain. You know, the reason that we start following Jesus may not be the reason that we see it through. Maybe we start following for the hope of redemption. But maybe he changes what our expectations are about what redemption really means. Maybe we start following him to seek him as a solution for our problems. God, fix it. But he redefines for us what our problems really are. In order to end as we begin faithfully, earnestly pursuing Jesus, we will inevitably go through some type of Holy Week transformation. Finding ourselves at the table with him, standing at his cross, in the garden with him as he weeps and cries. But the king himself is going to retell our story as the author of that story, not just as a character in it. And that's the story that he calls us to live out. What he invites us to is a journey that goes all the way to and through the cross and ends in sacrifice, but culminates in resurrection and new life. And it's a long road. We're all drawn to that street performer type of atmosphere and mentality, 
But do we stick around when that fanfare is over and the palms have died and the buzz of the crowd is gone? You see, many of us often only pursue Jesus when we perceive that he is the answer to our need. When we or someone maybe we love are really sick, when we lack sufficient resources to pay the rent, the mortgage, or buy groceries, you know, when we're confronted with antagonistic neighbors or hard to get along with church people, classmates, you know. In other words, when we ourselves are occupied as the Jewish people were by some outside force that has made us uncomfortable and discontent and something that has distressed us and not at all is to our liking. So does our loyalty extend all the way to and beyond the cross so that we can inherit new life and resurrection? Will we stick with it from when what we expect from him was a very different kind of throne and a very different type of authority when he's reigning? So I'm in this program that's called um, the Well-Being of Pastors Initiative. Some of you I've talked to about this, and Vineyard got this huge grant, and they put it to use trying to take care of their pastors, um, you're making sure that people don't burn out and bail out and give up and say, I quit, this is too hard. Because it is, being a, being a spiritual leader, being a, a pastor is often hard. Um, and so as a part of this program, we get a mentor, we get a coach, and we get a spiritual director. Um, all these, and, and plus a number of other things. But all these things to try and help us be healthy, both emotionally and spiritually and physically and all these things. Um, on Thursday, in the midst of my sermon preparation, I had my, my monthly call with my spiritual director who is this lovely lady named Jean that lives in Iowa and is just the sweetest thing and her MO as a spiritual director is kind of funny you know I'll just have like verbal diarrhea on the call and tell her everything going on in my life and everything that's happened and everything I'm worried and wondering about and all these things and she'll kind of go hmm well what I'm wondering is or hmm it's really interesting that you say that when really she's not wondering anything at all. Like she knows exactly what God's trying to tell me, but she's trying to get me to see this giant like backhand of truth that the Holy Spirit's giving to me that for some reason I'm just, you know, completely oblivious to in the moment for whatever reason. But that's what a good spiritual director does. So we're on this call and I'm telling her about my week and everything that's going on. And I was happy to be telling her how I'm kind of proud of myself because my mentor had encouraged me, Leah, you legit need to take like an actual 24-hour Sabbath. Like you need a day off you were just flying and burning and going on fumes and you need to stop it and you need to take an actual Sabbath day off. And so I have, like I've done really good for about uh, maybe five weeks now on Saturday taking a real day off. Now if, by the way, if I ignore your calls or texts or emails on Saturday, don't take it personal, that's why. I really am trying to disengage. And so she asked me this question about, well, what's the fruit that you've seen of that? You know, that, that's awesome. What, what are you seeing come from that? And I was telling her, you know, well, I'm a little more patient, I think I rest better, I'm in a better mood on Sunday mornings, you know, I'm, I'm, I have more, like, patience with my kids and my husband and, you know, all these good things that really do come from it. And I said, I'm in the same breath, I said, you know, but I've really been kind of disappointed because I'm not coming out of my Sabbath with the answers and the direction that I wanted from it. And she says, huh. Well, it seems like you had some very specific expectations for your Sabbath day. And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, aren't we all taught that if we are good little Christians and we do our quiet time and we get quiet and still, 
that God's going to talk to us and we're going to hear and have everything that we need. Like, does anybody else have that theology? Like, if I'll be still and listen, like, God's just going to, like, pull out his whole, like, list of things that I need to know in that moment? Because that's how I think. That's how I was taught. I think it's a little bit messed up. Yes, we need to get quiet to hear the Lord. But that's not what Sabbath is about. And so I started to say to my spiritual director, well, yeah, of course I do, because, you know, I started telling her this. And in that moment, it was as if the Holy Spirit opened a trap door in the ceiling of my office and dropped down on me this truth bomb of, what are you doing? (laughs) That's not what Sabbath is about. It's not about getting answers and figuring things out. And Leah, you know for you, if that's what you were doing, you're not really resting. Sabbath really is about rest and presence and nothing else. So I had an agenda. You know, I I had what I wanted from this. That was my reason in that moment on those days for pursuing Jesus and presence with him because it was a transactional thing and I wanted something back for it. I was all about my return on investment of time. I wasn't about rest and presence. We'll fix that. There are so many things we may follow Jesus for, but regardless of what happens to all those needs and all those questions and all that direction that we need, all those things we're bringing to him, we are made whole because we are with him. And that will be true when we're young and we're just kids and we don't get it. It'll be true when we're teenagers and we're confused and we're trying to figure all this stuff out. It'll be new when we're young parents and we're absolutely exhausted. It'll be true when we're empty nesters and we're wondering, what do we do now? It'll be true when we're older and we're trying to help our kids navigate those things that we've been through. And it'll be true when we're older and we're just reflecting back on all the things God has been through our life. So the God... Who he was on the day of the triumphal entry is who he is today. And our call to follow Jesus is a call to lifelong discipleship. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just play this quick video for you. I saw this, so whoever's got the sound, soundboard, you might need to, to turn this up. But this is just, this is kind of like something my spiritual director would do. It's an artistic way of asking the questions I've asked and giving you a moment to consider your answers and the implications of those answers. Is that going? I confess that on the road to Jerusalem, I don't know where in the crowd I might have stood. Did I throw my coat in honor or wave my palm branch in celebration? Did I lead the crowd in shouts of worship or stand in the back and just watch. I only know that your love chases and weeps. Your love celebrates, forgives, and walks the long road with me. Even when I leave you behind in the dust, your love endures, not just the goodness, but also the pain and the mistakes. I cannot explain even a moment that I forsake the opportunity to worship you. But today, I fall on my knees. I lay down the coat of my shame and sin. I wave my palm branch of surrender. I declare that you are God. There is no other. 
and I watch you go down the road where I know you endured it all for me. Amen. Guys, the type of discipleship that Jesus is calling us to is not just on the big flashy days when all the neat things are happening that we'll be talking about for decades to come. The type of discipleship that he calls us to may look and feel a whole lot more mundane in obedience and faithfulness than it does miraculous. But there's miraculous in that seemingly mundane because he is there. So if you're feeling a shaking in your life, in your vocation, in your relationships, in the places where he ex you expected him to meet you, if you're feeling any of those things today, he's there. And he's calling you closer. He's calling you to him. And you may not instantly get all the answers and the direction you wanted, but you get him. You get his presence. You get his salvation. You get his victory. Guys, there, there's a lot between now and next Sunday to not skip over. This is a very important week. I don't want us to all get busy this week or go off on spring break and do things and just accidentally fall and trip into Sunday. Let's prepare our hearts. You know, there's so much depth to ponder. Let's reflect on this Jesus that Peter later identifies as that stone from Psalm 118 that was rejected but becomes the cornerstone that he's the only one through whom salvation comes. So I just want to, you know, Luke mentioned this morning, I want to re-invite all of you to come and participate on Friday in the Journey to the Cross. We, we could use a couple more volunteers, but Josh and I will fill that in if needed. I, I, mostly I want you to come, and I want you to do it, and I want you to go through it, and I want you to experience it, and I don't want you to miss the opportunity to really sit and soak with everything Jesus has done for you and everything that that means. If you can share it, great, you know, use it as a tool. But come and be a part because it's a chance for us to get rid of all the misunderstandings we have about Jesus and the way that our minds misalign with who he is and the type of king that he's bringing, kingdom he's bringing. Um, so if you have kids, <laughs> I'm laughing because Josh is back there doing this. Yeah, what's it feel like, buddy? Um, he saw me act like nothing happened <laughs> so if you have kids in kids church today you're, they're going to come home with a thicker packet it's going to be a lot of pages and it's a chance it's a devotional it's a holy week devotional to engage with with your kids um, but take this week to really marinate in what all of this means and let's let's come together on friday and reflect and then let's come together again on Sunday. You guys, we're not doing this type of communion on Sunday because the type of communion that we're doing is a meal together outside where we celebrate the risen Jesus who went through all of this intentionally and overcame. Amen. So invite your friends. Invite those who need to know the Jesus behind that celebration. So let me just pray for us. Um, If you're feeling one of those shakings that I talked about, if you need to decide to follow Jesus for the first time, I just want to invite you to do that now. If you want to realign yourself with the type of king that he is and not the king that you wanted him to be, 
you can do that now as well. Jesus, we lift you high because you were king and you were victorious and you were the one who brings salvation and you were the one who gives success and nothing else. And Lord, we realize that the path might be long and hard, but we turn from our shortcut expectations to a long road of obedience with you. Lord, we offer ourselves to you as your disciples. And we know that you are faithful to see us through. Father, for those who may not know you and have never said, yes, I'm going to follow. I'm going to be Jesus' disciple who want to say yes now. Lord, would you come and meet them? Would you fill them with your spirit and your presence and your joy? And would you rescue them according to your good plan from their sin and from death? In Jesus' name, amen.